Welcome to Hormone Health Podcast, brought to you by Georgia Hartman and Chloe Sheehan. This podcast is an extension of Hormone Health Studio, which is our naturopathic clinic based here in Newcastle and online. We're just two naturopaths who love a laugh, coffee, croissants, and conversations about real people with real health concerns. Nothing's off limits. We're here to educate you on what's happening in your body, share emerging research, and debunk buried health misconceptions. So sit back and let us do the talking. We're going to love today's episode. We're specifically talking about premenstrual dysphoric disorder, also known as PMDD, and Hashimoto's. Our guest, Lisa Costa Burr, has lived experiences of both of these health conditions, as well as extensive clinical insight. We speak to Lisa about her own health journey and what she also sees in clinic, as well as lots of practical tips on how to manage symptoms. And we finish with our juicy new segment, Quickie in Three. So Lisa is a naturopath specializing in women's health and autoimmunity, particularly Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, and PMDD. She is also an author, university lecturer, and studying to become a sexologist, which we will actually really talk about because I'm really interested in that. What a wrap. What a lady. <laughs> I started to be with the Hamish and Andy of podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely the Andy. <laughs> Um, Lisa, we see a lot of hashies and PMDD in clinic. And so we thought, because we're talking about these topics, who better than to get the Beyonce of naturopaths on, which I still refer to you as that. Um, I want to know, firstly, how did you get into this space of treating hashies and PMDD or women's health? Sure. I actually just kind of fell into it by accident. I have got both of those conditions myself. And I also think when you have a condition, you get really into it because we all like to know everything about ourselves. So I was seeing a lot of women with Hashimoto's prior to getting it myself. And I actually didn't even recognize I had it in myself when it was like almost full-blown Hashimoto's, but I was completely unaware. So after I had my daughter, I was diagnosed about a year after having her. And I just started seeing lots of women with Hashimoto's just because I got really good at treating it and understanding the symptoms because I had it myself. And similar sort of thing happened with PMDD. A lot of people, it's not, a lot of people don't really know much about it. So I think when you really get the symptoms, you can really put yourself in the shoes of a client. And they often say to me, I came to see you because you've had the condition and you've kind of, you understand what we're going through in a way that someone who hasn't had the condition kind of just doesn't get those little intricacies. Yeah, absolutely. And so for someone experiencing intense symptoms, let's talk about PMDD. If someone's experiencing intense symptoms before their period and perhaps questioning whether it is PMDD, could you explain what it is and what those symptoms might look like? Sure. I think that's a really good uh, kind of question because a lot of women get mood symptoms, but I guess they're not the full-blown PMDD mood symptoms. So PMDD is characterized by really severe mood symptoms, anxiety, depression, hostility, rage, paranoia. 
that really affect quality of life. So I think the majority of women get PMS symptoms and mood symptoms often, but they're not to the extent where they really impact relationships and work and day-to-day activity. But with PMDD, women kind of feel completely out of control. They often say it's like a Jekyll and Hyde personality change. Mm -hmm. One day they're kind of normal and this is in the ovulatory phase um, or follicular phase, totally normal. As soon as ovulation occurs, for people that are really sensitive, they then experience this mood change where they're feeling completely different. And you almost hear like people say it's like a light switch. As soon as they get their bleed, they notice that their symptoms are improving. Um, but it's to that severity, right? And it's it's almost like they feel, and some people, and, and maybe in my experience with clients, is that they almost don't realise it's in relation to their hormones until someone says, okay, when are you getting it? What's the timing? Um, Did you, in terms of your personal symptoms, did you notice a gradual increase in severity or was it almost like it just sort of happened? You said it was after your daughter? With the PMDD? Yeah, with the PMDD. I feel like I've, so thyroid was definitely, I mean, I feel like I had simmering thyroid, but it really kind of kicked off after I had my daughter. But PMDD I've had since probably my first period, but I never understood what was going on. I'd never heard of PMDD. And so I just, I remember one of my earliest memories is my mum buying me vitamin B6 um, because she she was like, she could tell there was something wrong. Um, so she's like, Hope, maybe it's a phase. <laughs> <laughs> my poor mother. Um, but yeah, I just used to have these like really violent, rage-filled outbursts where I just couldn't control myself. Um, it's often like you're seeing, it's like you're you're viewing yourself like you can feel like you're being really bad and mm-hmm. saying all this stuff, but it's like you can't control yourself. You're watching yourself <laughs> from your brain. Yeah. And like how hard would it be, and you've probably experienced this, to be in an okay phase in your cycle but present to a GP and say this is what I'm experiencing. What would you say for somebody experiencing these symptoms? What's like the first line of if they're sort of questioning if they may have PMDD, what should they do? So I think there's a scale you can use. Um, it actually fits in, PMDD actually fits into a mental health issue. So it's found in the DSM-5 um, category for mental health disorders, really. So there's a scale you can use. There's different um, performance like proms, we call them. So you can scale your uh, symptoms and see whether you kind of fit into here. It's not something you can measure on a blood test. So it's not, you know, you can't see high or low hormones necessarily. It's more a retrospective thing where you're scaling your symptoms and, but I think most women can tell that they're, if they've got PMDD, that their mood symptoms are just out of proportion to what the average person kind of experiences. So typically a lot of my patients come to see me and they've been diagnosed by a psychologist. It's the psychologist that picks up, oh, hey, you know, you're experiencing this really bad depression or anxiety or paranoia or relationship issues, but I'm noticing there's a cyclical pattern to this because usually the mood stuff isn't too bad in the follicular phase. In fact, there may not be anything at all. Mm, interesting if you could give us like maybe two examples of a PMDD client one maybe a bit mild and then one really hectic Mm. (laughs) I put you on the spot no well um mild is I don't know if there is that much for mild when it comes to PMDD Mm. 
maybe there's milder, but it's um, just teary, paranoid, anxious in the lead up to period period time to just like an abnormal, like we shouldn't actually be experiencing such severe depression or anxiety and fatigue, um, brain fog, that sort of stuff. Like that's not actually normal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I guess a more severe type is the typical patient that comes to see me that might have small children or be in a relationship and just say, I locked myself in the bathroom and I really love my kids, but I just wanted to die. I just wanted to kill myself yeah. um, because their their voices were irritating me. The, there were toys everywhere and I just I just couldn't handle it. And I know this isn't normal. And as soon as I get my period, I feel kind of different. But every month when this happens, like everything's out of control and I start screaming this verbal rage at them and I feel really guilty about it. That's a typical sort of thing where the mum's coming to see me because they feel it's not it's more that they feel guilty about the way they're treating their children or their partner and they know that's not a good thing. And so with the understanding of PMDD and how that occurs, can you sort of talk us through either the hypotheses around how that starts and also a genetic sort of um, influence as well or what they sort of know about PMDD? Sure. So it's multifaceted and, yes, there is like there are a few genetic SNPs associated with PMDD particularly to do with the estrogen receptor and also serotonin receptors. So what we know with women who have PMDD is during the follicular phase, they tend to be fine. And even at ovulation, they're okay. So it's not really about high estrogen or anything like that. We know that the symptoms start in the luteal phase, particularly mid-luteal tends to be an issue. So we know it's more about the dance between estrogen and progesterone, but it's not really about them. It's actually about this metabolite called allopregnenolone, which is a progesterone metabolite. So women with PMDD actually have this heightened sensitivity to allopregnenolone levels. And it's not that they're, again, it's not that they're too high or too low. They're just hyperreactive to the movement of allopregnenolone and the way that it sits on a receptor in our brain, like the GABA-A receptor. So normally allopregnenolone sits on that receptor and it's supposed to make us feel really calm and relaxed and almost a little bit sedated. But in women who have PMDD, it has the opposite reaction. And instead of feeling relaxed and calm, they feel paranoid and irritated and aggressive. And so, you know, someone can be breathing next to them or chewing and it's just like nails on a chalkboard. Wow. Yeah, it's that sounds pretty Intense. like and, and because it's it's almost like you don't have control over it. It's not like a willpower thing where it's just like I need to tolerate this. <clears throat> it's actually a chemical reaction going on. Do you yeah. find, Lisa, that there's a particular demographic that are more prone to PMDD? Like are you finding it a lot in mums, for example? Lots and lots in mums. And I feel like that's because again, the research has shown that where there's a history of prolonged sustained stress or HPA access dysfunction, that is a risk factor two for increased risk of PMDD. So I think being a mum, we know there's often a lot of HPA access dysfunction, a lot of stress, a lot of juggling. And as much as we may love and love our children and want our children, sometimes just being on all the time and like just all the different things that are involved with parenting can just I think cause that communication between the 
the parts of the brain and the adrenals and the thyroids to go into a little bit of um, hypervigilance so that we know the brain affects how the, the sex hormones work and vice versa. So it's kind of this dysregulation occurring there. The other thing I should say around that is there is a fair amount of research coming out now showing that women who've had um, like trauma in childhood or even post-traumatic mm. stress later on, they also have a much higher incidence of PMDD. I think in one paper it was like 83% of women reported a trauma history. So, again, the hypothesis there is that that constant kind of stress from the trauma causes the HPA the like thyroid and the adrenals to be hypervigilant all the time and this has a flow-on action to the hormones potentially so, like birth trauma as well um there hasn't been anything with birth trauma specifically studied but I could definitely imagine that that could be a trigger for sure um they typically look at like verbal abuse in childhood bullying um sexual abuse and things like that but most definitely later on in life, I could imagine birth, any any sort of huge stresses um, mm. definitely do the same, yeah. What I think, what I find really interesting is the correlation that's now coming out around um, the connection between people of neurodivergency, whether that be autism, whether that be even ADHD, especially women who are getting later diagnosed and also the exacerbation of PMS symptoms or either PMDD. Could you touch on that? Yeah, so I think that's really interesting too because there's research now coming out that women who have PMDD also have a higher incidence of ADHD as well. So we know that there are similar kind of things going on with the neurotransmitters um, in both conditions. So it stands to reason that women who have ADHD are going to have worse PMDD symptoms. And I guess that's coming down to alterations with the neurotransmitters, including serotonin and dopamine. So we know in PMDD that there are issues with serotonin. When estrogen drops we or withdraws, we get a change in serotonin and dopamine as well. So um, I guess because there's already that pre-existing issue with dopamine in ADHD, then it's just going to make it even worse when that PMDD kicks in and there's issues with estrogen. I, don't, I'd say, I'm, I think it, I'm making it sound very complicated. No, um, no, no, but it, it makes sense. It's like it's fascinating. you're already dealing it? with, yeah, over sort of st stimulation yeah. coupled with the effects of menstrual cycle hormones. And I think what's really interesting, we see a lot of women being diagnosed with ADHD later in life. And so it's really it's been a really confusing time for them all of these years and then finally they're like oh mm -hmm. I think I'm getting some answers as to why I yeah. feel the way that I feel yeah and you know something they found in the research is that one of the biggest things women feel good about is just getting that diagnosis because before that they're kind of like why am I like this what's going on why do I turn into this person that just isn't me normally um, that I don't like and just getting a diagnosis of okay well you've got PMDD or you've got ADHD kind of just provides that clarity of why they're behaving the way that they are. In your opinion do you think that there's sufficient support both conventionally and naturopathically for women who are dealing with PMDD symptoms? No I don't I think um, 
I think naturopathically, yes, but I think the practitioner has to be aware of what PMDD is and, and know how to manage it correctly. And the same kind of goes for allopathically as well. I think it's not as well known. So often women may just be kind of told, oh, you know, you've got just PMS or they may be prescribed an antidepressant or something like that, which is actually one of the first lines of treatment mm. for PMDD and does work yeah. for some women, but it's not enough because it's just treating the serotonin, like the neurotransmitter aspect and not dealing with underlying drivers like the trauma or the high stress, etc. So I think naturopathically, I find it really easy to treat or manage PMDD. My patients get really good results very quickly because it's that real holistic outlook of understanding all the different things that we've talked about. So not just the genetics, not just the neurotransmitters, but the high stress, maybe the diet and so on and, and working on all of those. And then it's really easy to get good results, complete decrease very quickly. Would you say once you've started working with somebody and they're putting things in place, is it unrealistic to say that you can see changes within one menstrual cycle? It's not unrealistic at all. That's what I love about PMDD. I find it responds really quickly. So I have had a patient within the first cycle. She got her period and she was like, wow, I have never, ever just had my period without any symptoms coming prior. That is unusual, though. She's like my star. Yeah, <laughs> your golden yeah, your golden student. Yeah. But the majority, like it, it does take longer. And I, I don't know if it's something that ever goes away completely for the majority of women, because often, like if we're thinking about that hate this the high stress and so on, we can't often leave long hours of work and children and all those sorts of demands. So it's about You can, but I don't know if it's right. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes <laughs> but um yeah sometimes it's just about learning how to adapt to those stresses a little bit mm. better. and yeah. having some tools right like I think as soon and that's the beauty of naturopathy is that it really having a holistic approach mm. is that it takes into consideration all of the different aspects of your life and I think the other thing as well is that being a naturopath or studying in this industry, we, and I mainly mean me, sometimes when I get symptoms, I feel like I'm not doing enough, but we're human and I want to enjoy the good things in life. And I think that what we're trying to deal with is just like reduce severity of symptoms and improve quality of life. Yeah, I love that. And that's what I always say. I say, we're probably not going to be like, you're probably still going to have some mood issues, but instead of having 10 days of just wanting to kill everyone and yourself, you might just have one or two days, which is much more manageable. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. And what about, do you see a link between PMDD and the thyroid? So this is a great question because I see it a lot in my clients, but there's not any like hardcore research on it. And I'm dying for there to be like a research paper. Oh, written. there we go. There's a space for you. I hope so. <laughs> but like it just makes complete sense that there would be an issue with like a higher incidence of PMDD in women that have a thyroid issue. And that's because the thyroid hormones like T4 and T3 are responsible for transmitting serotonin and dopamine in the brain. So if there's not enough thyroid hormone, which we see in Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, then that 
that transmission of serotonin and dopamine is going to be altered. And we see in Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism that there's way more flat mood, melancholy, depression, anxiety for that reason. So if that's already there and then you get the PMDD on top of it with yellow pregnenolone, for sure, it's going to be a problem. So often when you improve T4 and T3, you definitely will see an improvement in the PMDD symptoms as well. So interesting. So, and this is probably just for my own clinical knowledge, but would you often test the thyroid and do like some routine bloods whenever you see PMDD? Absolutely. And that's, it's a differential diagnosis. So yes. And I would, I'm, I'm obsessed with testing thyroid in anyone, every, everyone anyway. So pretty much always testing and what you'll often see is sometimes it's in range like the t4 and t3 in range but the t3 is at that really low end so it's normal but it's in the threes which we know is just not optimal you're still going to be feeling pretty rubbish so would you say for somebody who may have a simmering which i love that you that analogy you use simmering sort of thyroid condition um would you see that all throughout the menstrual cycle or when we're sort of classically i guess for people listening considering they may have a family history of thyroid dysfunction what are some things that they should be looking out for symptom wise uh in terms of like sluggish thyroid yeah sluggish thyroid like yeah um, so when it's kind of in that subclinical, I often find that the mood isn't great. So feeling kind of flat and unmotivated, not super depressed in kind of like, oh, I'm so depressed, but just not feeling people say, I just don't feel myself. I'm not, I don't need an antidepressant, but I'm just, uh, I'm feeling flat and melancholy. Um, there can be a touch of anxiety. There can be just fatigue. Um, just feeling tired all the time. It's difficult to get up in the morning. Um, I often notice the outer thirds of the eyebrows can not be there. Mm. That's a classic kind That's of thing. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, not I'm, I'm the others. <laughs> might be the others though. Yeah. Um, feeling cold is a, a big one. Night sweats I hear about all the time in my Hashimoto's patients. Um dry skin, hair loss, more than normal, washing your hair and there being lots coming out. And this is the thing. It's like um, people, especially mums busy who are not prioritising themselves or people in general who are not prioritising themselves, they they may be... um, they may just be dealing with that until it gets to the point it's like, okay, it reaches a severity where they're like, I've got to do something. And then by that time, condition may be worsening. Are you finding with thyroid conditions that it is more prevalent in women? Oh, such a good question. So we do, we see a much higher prevalence in hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's in women compared to men. I think it's between four and eight. I might just be making those numbers up, but (laughs) sounds good. Yeah. Something like that. Um, yeah. 10 times more than (laughs) men's between four and 10 times. (laughs) It's, it's much more prevalent and it's not to say it doesn't happen in males. It certainly does, but much more common in females. And the big kind of thing there is because we've got our estrogen and our progesterone and the sex hormones really play a big role with um the immune system so when they're with i don't know if you know this because it's so interesting you probably do but there's receptors which are like little docking sites on our immune cells for our sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone so when they're fluctuating wildly as they can do they can 
they can cause that immune cell to become a little bit wild and crazy too. And that's part of that autoimmune process. So that's why we often see more autoimmune um, thyroid at adolescence when those hormones are kind of peaking, um, pregnancy, post-pregnancy, perimenopause. It's all, you know, it's those pivotal times um, when we see that. Yeah. Did you, was yours a case of um, postpartum thyroiditis or? So I, yes, it was, but I actually feel in hindsight that I had Hashis from adolescence. Um, I was really, I, I weighed the same as I do now when I was probably about 11. Um, but my mm. diet wasn't, yeah, my diet wasn't great or anything like that, but I was overweight and then I kind of lost, my mum put me on a diet um but it was like just not drinking soft drink and all that sort of stuff and I, I want lost- to see photos yeah. do you have any photos of 11 year old Lisa and was this before or after she gave you B6 <laughs> it was well before <laughs> so Lisa for somebody who may be experiencing symptoms of exacerbated PMS or even PMDD what's one take-home thing that they could implement to maybe reduce the severity non-expensive, not supplements or medications, something in either lifestyle or from a nutritional perspective? Oh, my favourite is actually sunlight. Um, So there's really good research on light therapy and you, you know, you could get a lamp, you can buy these special lamps off the internet or you could just go out in the sunlight. And when the light hits our retina, basically what happens is it transmits to a part of our brain called the suprachiasmic nucleus, pretty full on name and retina is in the eye eye, that's yeah and basically we get this release of serotonin which is insane and so we know that in pmdd women have issues with serotonin and that's part of the mood stuff that comes on so natural light this is clinical studies has been shown to increase serotonin and reduce PMDD symptoms. And they only need to do this in the luteal phase of the cycle. So two weeks before period time, but obviously if we're being holistic, we just want to get natural light every day anyway. But isn't that wild that light therapy, just sunlight can actually help to improve mood um, just because of those serotonergic effects. It's amazing, isn't it? And for how long? And um, 30 minutes. Easy. Yeah. Stare at the sun. I'm going to get a pterygium. <laughs> so we're not supposed to look directly. No, 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 no. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I got excited about <laughs> my PMDD. Um, that's really fascinating. When I was thinking about this question to ask you and I was thinking like she, she might say grounding, are you still into grounding? I'm so into grounding. I'm so into grounding. So feet on the, you know, set, take off your socks and feet on the soil or the sand. And I think what I what I like about that light therapy aspect, because I do it all the time myself. I go to I live right near the beach, so I'm always down there. And it like, you know, you if you're on the sand, you're not wearing shoes anyway. So you're grounding, you're getting your natural light, you're near the water, which has its own kind of benefits too. Um yeah, there's so, so many good things there for the PMDD just from being out in nature. And I think regardless of socioeconomic status in terms of like anything, people can implement that into their lives. And, you know, we all have access to sunlight, hopefully in some source, and we can all sort of ground in some way. Um, yeah. I love that. What about for Hashimoto's? If you had one little tip there. That's my same tip for Hashimoto's. Yeah. So- 
it's I love sunlight for everyone because and if we're going to apply it to Hashimoto's well it's going to help from the mood aspect there and help them feel more grounded because again stress is a huge driver of autoimmune thyroid but it's also a great source of vitamin d right and we know that vitamin d tends to be lower in women with Hashimoto's and the vitamin D is so therapeutic. It's been shown to decrease thyroid antibodies. It's really important for gut barrier function. And we know there's that leaky gut and all that sort of stuff um, in Hashimoto. So it's a real all purpose, the sun, sunlight. I'm a huge fan. There. And it's crazy. It's almost like you can go and do all the testing and have all the medication, but what it comes back to is these foundational right. health tips. And as you've got to have those as your as your foundation. Exactly. Yeah. And so often I have patients saying, oh, can I just take the vitamin D? But it doesn't like the supplement. And some people do need to take it, but you're not going to get the same results as nature and being outside. Yeah, absolutely. I want to know where that lamp is from. I think I need I need one in here. <laughs> you just Google like lamp for lamp. There's a specific kind of light that comes out. Yeah. I did read something interesting a while back about like when um, men expose testicles to sunlight, they increase their testosterone levels. That's right. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. When in doubt. I don't know if it's the D receptors on the testicles. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, are you going to take it away with our, our next segment? So, Lisa, we have introduced a little segment which we think is really fun and we have named it Quickie in Three. And so essentially we have three quick questions for you uh, and want your honest, most juiciest answer. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> so first one is, what's your most annoying thing about humans? Pet peeve, what pisses you off? What pisses me off? Um, chewing loudly, chewing mm. with your mouth open. I don't like that. Isn't there a name for that? What's it called? I think it's like, yeah, anyway, I could totally agree with that. Mm. What would you say yours is? Same. I can't really? stand. I don't care how much I love that person. If I hear them chewing and swallowing, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> I need to wear these while I eat dinner. <laughs> Um, okay, what is your go-to comfort meal? Meal. Okay, great. So it's it's not just one thing. It would be burgers. I love a good Ooh. burger. I love chips. I love yeah. lint chocolate, lint dark chocolate dipped into hot water. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Do you drink the water or do you eat the chocolate? Drink the hot water and eat the chocolate melted, yeah. What annoys Will about me when I eat chocolate is he'll just put the chocolate in his mouth, chew, swallow, and I'm like, you suck it. Suck it. Stephen sucks it too. That pisses me off. That's my. That's the most annoying thing about humans is when they get one square of chocolate and just let it. Why are you looking at my mouth? <laughs> Picturing you sucking on chocolate. so annoying. I love it. We love it, don't we, Lisa? We do. Are you a beef or a chicken b- burger girl? Oh, beef. Yeah. Yeah. And tell. <laughs> I feel like the, I always have these memories of chicken and KFC and um, cysts and on the chicken. And- oh, don't. I'm having a chicken schnitzel tonight. I love chicken schnitzel, but I don't yeah. know what it's about the burger. Okay. Um, this is a great segue for the third question. Yes. What's your spirit animal? 
I feel like my spirit animal is my cat or cat. And I I can see that. Yeah. You yeah, you do your cat cow, you'd enjoy the cat bit more than the cow. Yeah. I feel like cats are really kind of can be a bit mean, introverted. <laughs> yeah. And they come to you when they want attention, which I yeah. like. And then they're like, oh, leave me alone once they've got their food. Or- mm, yeah. Okay. I like that. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Milo. Milo. Yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't made a guest appearance. Mm, better than my cat's name, Ashley. I love it when people have human names. <laughs> I have one called, I think it was like Stephen or Mark. Yeah, that's- <laughs> It's, Ashley was perfect for a cat's name. It was random RIP, but um, still. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't see Ashley when I was at your place. No, no, my family cat. Family I still cat. talk about it. Yeah. And this is like maybe an extra question, but you mentioned that you were doing studying to become a sexologist. Yes, I am. Why, when, how, what are you going to do at the end? When are your books open? <laughs> Not for ages because I'm only doing my second subject. But it is so, so interesting and has really kind of changed the way that I think about um, sexuality and relationships and so on. So what can I tell you? I'm studying at Curtin University. It's a Master's of Sexology. So it's studying kind of sexual relationships and our sexual habits and not just like our personal ones, but um, why people commit um, sex crimes and things like Mm. that. So, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting. Libido is such an interesting construct. So, so interesting. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, we we were speaking about this the other day just in terms of how everyone sort of thinks like oh, low libido is a pathology where it's more like phasic or it has influences of your environment, your hormones. I think it's so fascinating. Yeah, so do I. I. And especially like the mental health component of libido as well. Like I think from a naturopathic perspective, we always think straight to hormones, but yeah, this so it's so much more complex um than that. Yeah. So I'm learning a lot. Oh, that's amazing, Lisa. You are a wealth of information. I always love listening to you speak. That's why you're such a good lecturer. I just remember fondly how you'd get me Japanese. I know. Well, um, I think you were like, can you buy me a bento box? I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, leave us a review and follow us on socials. We'd love to hear from you.